Rod Dreher has just written a prophetic, somewhat sobering new book, Live Not By Lies. His title borrows a line from a famous essay written by Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn just prior to his being exiled in 1974. There's always this fallacious belief, Solzhenitsyn warned in that essay. It would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. But alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible, everywhere on earth. Could that really be true, especially after the fast ascent of liberal democratic governance over authoritarian dictatorship in the world after the Cold War? Rod sees a new kind of evil on the horizon, what he calls soft totalitarianism, not hard communism or ideology advanced by tanks. His book argues, quote, a progressive social justice militancy is increasingly overtaking Western society, only inflicted from within. As that soft totalitarianism pushes dissenters to the margins, those with eyes to see can perceive its growing foothold in government, in corporations, in academia, in journalism, and as Rod argues, perhaps most important of all, empowered by unprecedented technological capacity to survey private life. Over the long haul, Rod builds his argument from the Benedict Option to suggest its religion, family life, and other manifestations of sectarian counterculture that are essential to stem the tide in what's coming. Interfacing with Rod around some of these warning but also guidebook themes is Andrew Sullivan, who's experienced his own share of clashes over three decades of prolific writing. The two discuss contemporary cancel culture, new breakouts of illiberalism in the wake of the global pandemic, woke newsrooms, unrest in Portland and Seattle, and maybe closer to home, how to navigate encounters with millennial and Gen Z emissaries, who sometimes know so much that isn't so. When I saw these woke protests that burst out in the middle of this epidemic, blasting through all social distancing in some sort of wave of hysteria, that's what I thought of. Rod wants would-be dissidents to form thick, coherent communities of meaning that can cultivate habits of adequate depth push back and likely sustain persecution down the road. He says we'll need that shared coherence and grit when the thought police or tech-savvy AI or powerful business interests and other forces come our way, speedily challenging outdated ways of life. Andrew Sullivan, meanwhile, argues this battle can also be energizing, as he's recently discovered when trolls decried him together with J.K. Rowling. Andrew's Harvard PhD focused on cultivating and maintaining liberal order in the tradition of Michael Oakeshott, and he argues that liberal democracy still holds by far the greatest public legal order for fostering human flourishing, even for all our challenges. And just a word of background since today's journalist heavyweights are so exceptional. Rod Dreher is the senior editor at the American Conservative, where he blogs every two weeks, garnering by itself north of a million regular readers. His 2017 book, The Benedict Option, his fourth, has sold 75,000 copies and is available in 11 languages. Rod's also worked for five newspapers, four of which were outside D.C. In the show notes, you can find links to his blog, to The Benedict Option, and to his new book, due out in September. And to borrow a provocative sentence, Andrew Sullivan is a British-born, American, Catholic, gay, anti-Trump conservative, who has revolutionized blogging and helped define the political trends of an era. Ross Douthat and Tyler Cowen both argue he is the most influential political writer of our generation. He's written four books and edited three more, 
From 2000 to 2015, Andrew's blog at its apex, first at Time, then at The Atlantic, then at The Daily Beast, reached north of 5 million monthly readers, which outstrips the circulation numbers of even today's biggest papers, from New York Times to The Wall Street Journal to The Washington Post. Andrew's also a former Faith Angle speaker, and linked in the show notes are his candid, vulnerable 2017 remarks about a decision to take a sustained pause from blogging in 2015, when he spent six months rethinking the invasive role of technology in our lives. Finally, after four years of a weekly post each Friday at New York Magazine, he's once again broken culturally free to start a new endeavor. After just three weeks, he's earned over 72,000 subscribers and more than 10,000 financial partners for a, quote, weekly dish, one that if you're a reader, we hope you'll check out. Like Rod's new book, it too is linked in the show notes. Let's dive in. Enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome, Rod. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Just thinking about how, in some ways, Rod, you have just written a book coming out this fall that's sort of a warning book. It's a thinking ahead, live not by lies. I have it here, a manual for Christian dissidents. And in a way, Andrew's obviously been through a little bit of a, a warning experience. I want to talk a little bit about the rise of illiberal journalism, the rise of illiberal trends and the academy and in the market. Rod, maybe you could just start off by giving us a little overview of the book's thesis. Sure, Josh. Thanks for having me on. The idea for this book came to me about five years ago when I got a phone call from a doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, friend of a friend kind of thing. And he told me that his elderly mother had emigrated from Czechoslovakia years ago. She had been a political prisoner uh, because she was involved in the underground Catholic Church in the early years of communism there. But she came to America, married his father, had him, and she was an American. But now she was very, very old, and she was telling him, son, the things that are happening here in this country remind me of what happened when communism came to my homeland. And it scared the doctor. So he he felt like he had to tell somebody. He told me, and I thought, that's really alarmist. So I started checking with people I knew who had grown up under Soviet communism, but who lived here. And I would say, listen, is this Czech woman being just frightened because she's old and watches too much cable news, or is she onto something? Every single person I talked to, Josh, said, absolutely, she's correct. And if you talk to them long enough about it, they would say how angry they get with Americans that Americans can't see it coming. So the book I've written is an analysis of this moment we're in now in this country with cancel culture, with political correctness gone mad. I think it it is a soft totalitarian moment. It's not going to be hard totalitarianism, which is what the Soviets had with gulags and political prisoners and executions. It's going to be softer, but it's still going to be totalitarianism. It's the kind of thing we're seeing now where people can't say what they want to say. They can't write what they want to write. They have to fear for their jobs because they don't follow a very narrow political ideology. What I've done in this book is tried to analyze that in ways that it shows itself and why it is becoming much more pervasive in America without Americans understanding what's happening. And furthermore, I went to the former countries of the Soviet bloc and to Russia and interviewed a number of people who had been dissidents under communism and asked them for practical advice for Americans, particularly American Christians, but also all Americans, for how we can form a practical resistance 
to what's coming. The title of the book, Live Not By Lies, comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's final essay to the Soviet people on the eve of his 1974 exile, where he wrote to them all and said, look, we don't have any power, but the one thing we can refuse to do is to live by the lies and nod and accept the lies that uphold the system. This is something we heard from Václav Havel, most memorably, too. And I think in the same way, we have to learn how to do that and what that means to be an American in this decade. And indeed, not only an American, but living in the West under soft totalitarianism. I wonder if I could ask just a little bit quickly on on tech as a part of that, because you talk in the book about the soft rise of essentially surveillance technology and and how powerful it is when the when the sort of Twitter mob comes at you. There seems to be a little bit still, though, two sides of, of how this plays out between, on the one hand, groupthink and its power, and on the other hand, the ability to use technology to go directly to people and to readers. And we've we've just recently watched Andrew Sullivan, just an issue or two in to the dish now, do that and use Substack to say that it's a direct path to readers. So what about the sort of dual-sidedness of this reality, particularly in the, the technological space? How do you guys see that? I was standing about a year ago in Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, in an underground chamber that had been used in the 1980s by the underground church in that country to print samizdat, illegal catechisms, prayer books, things like that, for distribution throughout the country to undermine the, the communist government. And it was incredible to me to be standing there, first of all, to know that people risk their lives and their liberties just to print prayer books. But it's also the case that today we don't have need of that kind of samizdat because we have the internet where things are much more free. On the other hand, I believe that we will see in this country develop something like what the Chinese have, where they will have firewalls in place where they can shut people down, not only technologically, but they can shut them down uh, economically. We can talk maybe a bit later about the Chinese social credit system by which the government monitors everything people do, all their purchases, which are increasingly electronic, not with cash. And if you don't comply with what the government wants, if, say, you won't listen to the Xi Jinping podcast or things like that, you get a lower social credit rating, which makes it harder to get access to the economy, to goods and services. So this is what I mean by soft totalitarianism. They're not going to have to put people in gulags. They will be able to regulate your access to the economy and to information if you don't comply. So this is the the double-sided sword there. And uh, one more thing I'll add quickly and then turn it over to Andrew. I was sitting in Prague in the apartment of Camilla Bendova. Her husband, she and her husband were the only Catholics, only Christians who were part of Václav Havel's inner circle uh, under communism. And I was sitting there interviewing her, and she told me that she cannot understand why so many people in the West allow themselves to be monitored on their smartphones, with their Alexa speakers, things like that. She said, if you have lived as we had to live, knowing that every little bit of information that somebody gets about you can and will be used against you, you would never accept that. And uh, she pointed out to me as we sat there, the walls in their apartment where after the communist government fell, she and her husband had to pull out the wires, the surveillance wires that the government had installed. Nowadays, we don't have to worry about Big Brother, the government coming in and putting the telescreen in your house. 
We do it ourselves. We welcome it into our lives ourselves. So this is part of the problem, the naivete that so many Americans have about technology that makes it so much easier for the commissars. It's a curse and a blessing, obviously. Without it, let's say we were in the 90s and we had a variety of political magazines, maybe 10 or so in the country that really made a difference. And they all shifted as they have done towards a new ideology that was deeply illiberal and you lost your job or you were deemed someone they couldn't really associate with, you were screwed and you really were silenced. There really were gatekeepers that really could help shape the discourse. And that happens to some extent, but of course now you can create your own little magazine, you can create your own access to people. I mean, when I was editing the New Republic in the 90s, for example, we managed to get the readership up to 100,000 when I was there. And I just got 70,000 in a week through the internet for my new little outlet called The Weekly Dish. So with no expenses at all, I didn't have to pay printing press or any of the other associated costs with old media. So that's incredibly exciting and people will move to that. But this affects not just journalists, but everybody that just wants to live and, and act as an economic actor or as a, just a social actor in their own environment in ways that inevitably constrain you. I mean, I think Rod and I would both understand what it's like to be people of religious faith that had to go through an educational system, a higher educational system in the 80s and 90s, for example, which was we were always treated as certain freaks, certain kind of freak. We were always identified as Catholic guy or conservative guy or this don't take everything he says seriously because of this, that, and the other. And that has just become, now it's on steroids. And now you're actually treated not just as someone who disagrees, but someone who's fundamentally morally wrong. And the rhetoric has also ratcheted up. So whereas in the 90s, you could be accused of saying something that's, let's say, racist, now you're a white supremacist. Whereas you could have been told that you were a sexist, now you're a misogynist, you hate all women. If you have the slightest debate about exactly what it means to be a trans woman, you are, even if you're J.K. Rowling, a proud, angry, hateful bigot causing the deaths of countless people. And people believe this rhetoric. So not only do you have a more oppressive sort of culture, you have hyperbole of rhetoric deliberately contrived to purge people in ways that are very hard to deny. And if you're always on the back end of the argument, if you're always having to say, no, I'm not a racist, no, I'm not a homophobe, no, I'm not a transphobe, you're already losing. And that's why they've seized the initiative, is they've harnessed this ideology to which if you disagree, you are regarded as bad human being to be dissociated with. I was going to say, Andrew, it's religious, actually, the way they go about this. For me, one, one of the light bulb moments in researching Live Not By Lies came when I was reading a book by a man, Yuri Sleskin. He's a historian at Berkeley, a Russian-American historian. He wrote a book that came out two or three years ago called The House of Government. It's a thick doorstop-sized history of the Bolshevik Revolution. And for Sleskin, the Bolsheviks were an apocalyptic millennial political cult. He draws the parallels between the Bolshevik party 
and radical Christians in the Reformation, utopians, other radical religious groups, except they didn't have a God. They, their God was history. Their prophet was Marx. But if you read Sleskin's book and try to understand our current moment through that religious utopian framework, it's amazing. So many things open up to you because the, the Bolsheviks did this and our own woke people are doing this too. They find ultimate meaning and purpose in choosing to try to overcome evil, it sets up the world as a division between the good and the evil, the sheep and the goats, and they believe that after some apocalyptic reckoning, then we will have perfect justice. This is what millennial cults have always done, and the woke are no different. Except one thing, Rod, I would say. I agree with all of that. And the language they use, well, the very, the very phrase, woke, to be, it's, it's a bit like being born again. Suddenly everything, everything in the world looks different to you because you see the underlying oppressive forces that are manufacturing themselves, even if you don't express the single bigot thought. But the, the reason it's different is there's no utopia. I mean, this is the astonishing thing. The communists believed, however bizarrely, in a sort of Marxist materialism that led through an Hegelian dialectic to the communist paradise, which was inevitable. Uh, it could be maybe advanced a little bit by the proletarians and so on, but it was coming. And we'd all live in peace and harmony. That is not the case with critical theory. Critical theory is rested in the idea that there is no escape ever from these mechanisms of power, that all you have to do constantly is fight for your particular group against other groups. It's a zero-sum game. And there is no dialectic within it which ends in paradise. It is Marx without a happy ending. So it is an endless source of conflict and grievance with no redemption. And as you say, it's soft totalitarian. It's complete. It's in the, in the university classroom. You tell the story of the Christakis at Yale, familiar now. But you also tell the story of the will to sort of Nietzschean power and language. And if you don't agree with this language, you are out. Interesting, though, though, I thought, Rod, you conclude when you say essentially there is a sort of religious alternative. One could, could view the world that, that it's all about getting power and having others embrace my language and thereby winning. Or you say at the end, no, no, those who are, are happiest and most content in their eyes late in life are those who, who essentially learned that the less I could change the world, the stronger I became, that there was an inner peace that was quite, quite different than the, the narrative, almost like a, a gospel versus the revolution, a progressivism as religion, as you say in chapter three. Can you tell us about that latter part? It's actually not even my story. It's a story of a young photographer I met in Bratislava, a Catholic name, uh, Timo Krishka. And Timo is about 30, 31 years old. He was only a, a small child when communism fell. So he was the first generation to grow up in the Eastern Bloc with no real knowledge of communism. And yet he couldn't find happiness in his own life. And their hopes were raised for a better material life. They had a much better material life than their parents could have hoped for, but still something was missing. He decided to start a photography project by traveling around Slovakia photographing and interviewing uh, elderly people who had been through prison camp as political prisoners under communism. And he found that the more he talked to these people, who even today had nothing, they were living in great poverty in many cases, they had been tortured, they had suffered horribly. 
And yet they had so much inner peace that he, he himself was struck by it. He told me once driving away from one of these interviews, he had to pull over on the side of the road and lie in the ditch in the sunlight and think about what he had heard. For Timo, he realized that the real totalitarianism he had been living under as a free man was a totalitarianism of self, of wanting to make himself happy, of wanting to gain greater status as a filmmaker and gain more things. Only by looking at these elderly people who had suffered horribly but learned to accept their suffering as in some way a gift from God to make them into holier people and to more loving and giving people were they able to be free. And Timo said it really changed his life. And this is something that even if we never get into any kind of oppressive totalitarian situation here in America, there's still something very powerful about the witness to the power of suffering to make us more compassionate and peaceful people. Or for that matter of exclusion, marginalization. I mean, Christianity is all about why that process is not condemnatory to you necessarily. It can be the place where the truth is most acutely seen. It can be the place where the insights are the most profound. It can be the place where you've been so stripped of things that fill you with pride that you are freer than any other person. And what strikes me about some of the critical theorists, which is the term I'm going to use, is the joylessness of it, the absolute grimness of it, the anger, toxicity, the hate, the venom, the obsession with power, the obsession with destroying other human beings for not being adequately woke and destroying them without any means of redemption. So that once they've been destroyed, there is no mercy at any point in the future for them. They've been permanently canceled. So it's a horrifying word, cancel someone. Even ostracizing someone means that they still exist somewhere. To cancel someone means that they've been obliterated from history, that it's like a Stalinist erasure from a photograph. And this is not a place where you find people who are psychologically balanced or spiritually at peace. It is a place where people who are neither of those things are seeking all kinds of transcendent meaning with an urgency that we normally associate with religion. But religion, of course, is tempered by thousands of years of doctrine, development of doctrine, of practices, of human wisdom, of where things have failed and where things have succeeded. And this is an instant ideology created essentially in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s that has none of that wisdom and an extraordinary amount of of crudeness. It's It's so blind in so many ways to so much of human life. It's only interested really in how human beings oppress each other or hurt each other. And its recourse and remedy for that is to hurt the people who are hurting you in an endless cycle of conflict. And that's what it shares with Marxism, of course, this sense of society as an endless conflict. Whereas, of course, that is no way to get any peace of mind in the world. It's no way to live freely with your, with your fellows. And, you know, I live in Provincetown this summer, which is a lovely little spot. And, it's, and it's, it has largely resisted the wokeness, even though it's super liberal, full of gays, because it's, it's still got this madcap libertarian individualistic sense of blowing a raspberry everything and anyone. So, but nonetheless, for the first time this summer, I've had conversations with particularly younger guys 
in which we've talked about some of these questions and they are simply incapable of debating them. They have not been essentially subjected to alternative points of view at all. So in that sense, it is a bit like religion as much as they've been literally indoctrinated. They know the doctrines. They also know that people who disagree with these doctrines are evil. And the only way they can figure out whether they're evil or not is by looking at who they are, whether they're white, black, blah, blah, blah. This is the context in which they're operating. And at a certain point in each of these discussions, this is two guys I talked to for about maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. Towards the end of it, as we were getting into sort of to and fro, I wasn't being aggressive. I was just asking question after question, leading question after leading question. They suddenly realized that I wasn't woke. And at that point, they just said, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I can't be around you. I'm sorry. Because you will taint them. This is, this is fundamentally religious. And in my book, I quote this man, Martin Latsis, who was the head of the NKVD, the secret police in Ukraine in 1918. He wrote something about the Red Terror, which was the, the campaign of murder, bloodletting, and arrest that the Bolsheviks unleashed in 1918. And listen to this short quote, Andrew, and tell me if this does not sound like wokeness. Latsis wrote, do not look in the file of incriminating evidence to see whether or not the accused rose up against the Soviets with arms or words. Ask him instead to which class he belongs. What is his background, his education, his profession? These are the questions that will determine the fate of the accused. That is the meaning and essence of the Red Terror. So there you have it. Today, we don't have, again, we don't have gulags, we don't have firing squads, but we do have people who are judged guilty simply for the fact they are the wrong race, the wrong gender, and so on and so forth. But we have to build some kind of resistance to this. What, what do you think we, we can do? Equally, in this town, there are lots of little shops, always been little shops. Every single one has had a Black Lives Matter poster in its window of some kind or other. And those who don't put it up, are immediately suspect. So it's incredibly like your, you know, Vasa Pavel's greengrocer. This is almost, it's, 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 it's protection. Right, right, the greengrocer. And they are criticized if they don't, if they're not fulsome enough, if they're not, not completely forthcoming about how they do this every day. I mean, to give you another example of how deep and how far this has gone, I know for a fact, because a friend of mine was in the room, the first meeting that A.G. Salzberg had is the young new owner of the New York Times with his own new staff. The first question was, Mr. Salzberger, what have you done to counteract your white privilege today? That was the first question from a journalist. So these people are not interested. They're not interested in going out there and finding things out. They're not interested in the process of journalism. They're in the interest of advancing a form of religion which must be taken up by every individual around them, including their own boss, and are completely fearless, have no fear whatsoever of people who might have power over them, because they know at this point that if they invoke race, gender, or sexuality, or a whole bunch of other things at this point, that the liberal in charge will immediately concede. That's just it. The liberals, the gatekeepers, are collapsing. And I, I fought them as much as the woke because the people like the president of Princeton who wouldn't stand up to his own faculty. This happens over and over and over again. And people, ordinary people, dissenters get the message. Be quiet. You know, I, I want to say, Andrew, that 
for me, this is going back a ways, and you and I both lived through this as journalists. There are two events that taught me the importance of religious humility and professional humility as a journalist. They both happened in the 2000s, and they're, they're relevant here, I think. The first was the Iraq War. I was in New York on 9-11. I lived in New York then. I was absolutely 100% in favor of the Iraq War. I thought the only reason that anybody could possibly oppose it was that they were either a coward or they were a fool. And uh, I, I wrote about this sort of thing, too, to support the war. I was very, very wrong. And the, the humiliation of that, being in the wake of that humiliation, forced me to ask myself how I knew what I knew. And I realized, too, that I had surrounded myself as a conservative journalist. I worked at the National Review and then at the Dallas Morning News during the Iraq War. I had surrounded myself with people who provided me with what you once called epistemic closure. The second thing, the Catholic abuse scandal. When I came into the Catholic Church, I was a super Catholic, very conservative, very political, and I thought the answers to every question were there in the catechism and within my own conservative Catholic ideology. And then I started writing about the abuse scandal and came to realize that, paraphrase Solzhenitsyn, the line between good and evil in the Catholic Church did not pass between right and left, but down the middle of every Catholic and every Catholic priest and every Catholic bishop's heart. That shattered me spiritually, that experience. But what God did for me out of both of those things, which happened around the same time, was to make me a lot more humble about what I can know, a lot more tolerant about people who disagree with me, but also more respectful of mystery, of the idea that there are things that we cannot know, so we had better be very, very careful about being dogmatic and militant about it. I mean, the Iraq War for me was a, a very profound moment of truth in which I was, like you, wrong. And I had to examine why had been so, it had been so easy for me to be so wrong. And I think I agree with you that part of that was the milieu in which I lived. I've been saturated in neoconservatism. And also, I think I was, my entire emotional psyche had been, was traumatized by 9-11. I really did feel, looking back, I see that my, my mind was completely taken over by primal emotions at that point. And that was also to be distrusted. So yes, I, I learned intellectual humility for that and also tried to re-understand conservatism as a politics of humility, of epistemological humility, spiritual humility. And that's what my book, The Conservative Soul, was really about, about the centrality of doubt in any believer's worldview as the, as the guarantee against the perils of total certainty. When I come across people today with an absolute total certainty about something, I can recognize my past in it. I'm not above it but I've, I've learned to suspect it. So when someone tells me everything, every difference between, let's say, white people and Asian people is a foundation of white supremacy, my instinctive response is, are you sure? Aren't there other things? Isn't it more complicated? And I think the spiritual stuff, not to call it stuff, but I agree. I think there was an element in which, in my own life, you know, my own, well, this is another discussion, but grappling with my own orientation, as a, a same-sex attractive person, which did not make sense within the doctrine of the church, also forced me into a dialogue with that doctrine in which I tried to come to some kind of realistic 
and sane conclusion. But it meant that my relationship with the church, although always deferential, was not purely obedient at that point because I'd seen too much and I could see some of the intellectual slipshodness and some of the moral weakness throughout that institution. So yeah, but these people, there's no blemish allowed and no flaw really tolerated. And it also, of course, the other thing about it, it's, it's boring. As an actual way of talking about the world, if there's only one explanation for everything, and all you do is variations on the theme, you end up with the New York Times op-ed page in which you just simply, which identity is being oppressed next in which column? And there's almost no other topic available. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear that, that term daily from Salzberger, you know, that, that was asked by a journalist. What have you done today? The idea that it would be daily renewing of your mind on, on this front too. Can I ask real quick on, on humility in particular, one of the things that's striking about this book is the second word of the, of the subtitle, which is manual. It's a manual for Christian dissidents. And the question is, how does one rightly connect this conviction about humility and about doubt and of self-questioning on the one hand with practical power, frankly? I mean, you have large reach, each as bloggers, really large reach, going back to the Atlantic and, and, and the past the dish for you, Andrew, in blogging days, and, and you, Rod. Your book has reached many, many people, the most recent one. How does one rightly think about as what is a, C.S. Lewis's line was about, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. How do you rightly think about the long-term faith conviction pieces and be practical about cultural power? That's such a complicated question. I, and it is the question, you know, because I, Andrew and I are both uh, of a generation that saw the rise and the fall of the religious right and how so many Christians, conservative Christians, believed that if only, if only we could hold political power for long enough and get enough of our, the right people on the, the bench, the judiciary, then all would be well. And this is a very general indictment, but generally speaking, we completely ignored the culture. And now we find ourselves the religious right. I don't know if Andrew would call himself a religious conservative, but I certainly am. We find ourselves bankrupt politically because of events of the past few years and of the tag of ourselves so closely to Donald Trump. And at, at the same time, we've lost the younger generation. We've lost the culture. So the old strategy of trying to move the culture along and make it a more Christian culture by gaining political power has failed. I feel that now this is a controversial thing among a lot of my readers. I believe that we Christians who consider ourselves traditional conservative have to form smaller communities within which we can nurture our beliefs and our values within community. And politically, the, the best thing we can do is defend the classical liberal values of free speech and free expression so that the things that we care most about, the pre-political things we care most about, can thrive. In terms of humility and all this, I, I think that we need to aim, as you say, aim low. I think about something that Sir Roger Scruton told me when I interviewed him for my book only six months before he died. I went to his farmhouse in Wiltshire, and uh, he told me about his years working in the Czech Republic, well, it was Czechoslovakia then under communism, to help build an underground university. So people, Czechs, who really wanted to get a real education, not this Marxist claptrap in the state universities, so that they could do that. 
And Sir Roger told me, and I later found this out interviewing people in the former Czechoslovakia who were part of this community, these people would come together in apartments of dissidents for seminars where they would talk about real literature, real economics, real politics at no small risk to themselves. I think in a similar way, we have to form these small groups right now, if only to keep the memory of what we know to be true and what our culture has long held to be true, to keep it alive through this dark age. My feeling is that liberalism is not over, that it's under extreme stress right now, but that as a resilient system of government, one that allows, for example, competing flourishing of different kinds of pre-political. So it allows for fundamentalist Christianity, it allows for Marxists, it allows for everyone within a certain set of rules that do not infringe on others, that that is actually the only solution to an increasingly culturally, spiritually, and racially diverse society. That you cannot, cannot do this by operating as groups without it becoming some kind of civil conflict or without it becoming totally zero sum. The only non-zero sum way to live together with this amount of diversity and with this collapse of any unifying meaning is actual liberalism. And so I'm confident actually that that will prevail because it is the least worst option we have. That probably won't satisfy Rod, it doesn't satisfy people like Patrick, Denis and so on. It is the least worst option. We Our entire system of government has been based on it, is based on it. So we still have all that infrastructure, all the constitutional infrastructure, however much they try to undermine it, is still, the First Amendment, for example, is still there. And therefore, the liberal system can be defended even when it's on the ropes. Maybe if Trump loses, because Trump, I think, has been an incredible, in some ways, reagent to the increasing power of the religious left, let's call it, by which I mean the critical theory left. And because he himself has no conception of liberalism, it's always zero-sum for him, he's brought out zero-sum opponents. And I hope that with him gone, if he goes, there'll be some space to recreate a liberal society. I don't think we're ever going to recapture the kind of unifying politics of meaning, as it were, that one could see disappearing in the secular world. I don't think it can be done in reverse. But I do think you can sustain liberalism to allow these deeper pre-political truths, as, as Rod says, to subsist and maybe come back in due course. But the idea that you, the Christians, for example, should be interested in wielding power to enforce their idea of the good is just not something I see in the Gospels at all. I see an individual resisting power, fleeing it in many ways, and allowing the truth to be what supplants power, and with that truth, a great sort of freedom. So that however much power people have over you, they don't really, because in your mind, they have no power at all. They can't compel you. And it's the building up of that kind of character that is indifferent to and resistant to these forces of power that we need to encourage and develop. And we have a great liberal tradition in which to do that. By liberal, I also mean small C and old C conservatives that have long thrived in a liberal pluralistic society in making our case. And even with the speech stuff and the press stuff, I don't think most people like this. I really don't. And I also think the product that they're creating 
are increasingly dull and sanctimonious and lacking in vigor and vim and joy. And so I'm sort of relatively confident that we'll get through this at some point. So I'm not quite as depressed as you, Rod, even though I have been in the past. I do think that the sinews of liberalism just need to be revived. The muscles of liberalism need to be exercised. And these horrible dogmas that seek to coerce and control people will come to seem the, the sort of unpleasant things they are. And let's, let's also say this, that some of the motivations behind some of the least aware people who were involved, say, in the BLM matter, or even indeed in the trans rights movement, all the other parts of political theory, at their best, they're trying to be nice to people. They're trying to include people, not demean them, not disparage them, trying to deem others worthy of respect and dignity. And of course, all of that is possible without their Marxist critical theory coming down on them. In fact, some of them have the right inclinations, uh, which is they have Christian inclinations. They just do not have any architecture, any theology or any practice to put this into effect. And one might point out, Rod, I don't know what's happening in your part of the world, but I haven't been able to go to Mass in months now. There's no Mass to go to. I can't celebrate Mass in my faith right now. I'm, I'm completely cut off because of, obviously, social distancing. So that's another question. And the other thing I think that might be distorting this moment is the epidemic itself. One thing, I just did a lot of research on the history of plagues and wrote an essay, one thing you see in these periods of epidemiological insecurity and fear are the rise of extraordinary extremist religious movements. They come, if you look, for example, at the flagellants in 14th century Germany, or indeed the Lollards in, after the Black Death in England, these underground religious fanatics that come up and see the whole thing as ending, the world ending. Well, I think when I saw these woke protests that burst out in the middle of this epidemic, blasting through all social distancing in some sort of wave of hysteria, that's what I thought of, that some of the things that we're witnessing now may be understood historically as products of an epidemic environment that makes people crazy. I think you're right about that. And think about all the destruction that can come after all that. I'll give you an example. In Russia, in late imperial Russia, the radicals that came out of the 1860s, the, the Marxists and others, they couldn't get much traction with the broader public until 1891-92. There was a catastrophic famine in Russia that the imperial government completely failed to handle. And this was the first time that middle-class people and more ordinary people began to listen to the radicals because the normal institutions of their government had failed so miserably to address this catastrophe. That really rang a bell with me watching my own government, our government, fail to deal with this plague that we're suffering through now. And these things can have serious long-term effects. We're talking about liberalism a second ago, and I'm not as optimistic as you are. I I tend to believe that we have eaten up the seed corn for liberalism in this country, the kind of liberalism that you and I would both support. One thing that really got to me in researching uh, my book was reading Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, which came out in 1951. As you know, she went back to examine what was it in what conditions in Germany 
and Russia brought forth the totalitarianism that overtook those countries. And she found a number of things that were pre-totalitarian, of aspects of society and politics in those countries that were pre-totalitarian. I won't go into them all here, but so many of them resonate with people right here, right now. Greatest among them is loneliness. She said that people in those countries were so lonely, so socially atomized, and their respect for institutions had collapsed, and on and on and on. And these don't guarantee totalitarianism, but they did make people ready to listen to an illiberal, indeed totalitarian, radical message. I fear that we ourselves are so close to that right now, and it's just going to take the right or the wrong person of the left or the right to activate this hunger that is within people now because of the failures of liberalism to meet the needs of people. And also, of course, the underlying economic stresses on people who are in the working class and the failure of capitalism in the 21st century to really make their lives any better. Oh, sure. Put that together with the collapse of meaning and the collapse of institutions and the atomization of the web which is only, of course, intensified in the epidemic. People are lonelier than ever. I rarely felt as lonely as I have this year. I mean, I'm cut off from everybody. People staring at screens all day lose perspective on what the world is. They lose perspective on what joy is. They lose perspective on what human interaction really is in a physical, real-world sense. So I agree with you. I think this epidemic has intensified a lot of underlying themes that were making making the world and this country particularly extremely tenuous as it, as it is. And the inability of society this fractured to actually reach a consensus and implement it, for example, on health, is a real worrying sign that the thing is, is breaking down. Again, it's hard to know how much this is because we have this president who I think is discredited, I mean, who's, who's done unbelievable damage to liberal democratic institutions and practices and who has also been an appalling public health official in the last nine months. Sure, but I I think Trump is, and the Trump presidency, is less a cause, though he is an accelerant, but I think he's also a result of the deeper breakdown of capitalism and liberalism. One thing that I find so interesting, Andrew, was back in uh, 2013, that's when in the mainstream media, you began to see all these social justice terms like whiteness, white fragility, and so on, really take off. This political scientist, Zach Goldberg, down in Georgia, did a deep LexisNexis dive. You probably saw that, in which he searched all the media to see how often these terms showed themselves. Around 2013, and certainly by 2015, all of the terms that are now so common just rocketed to prominence in the media. So this is the sort of thing that when the elites who produced the media, when they began using these terms more and more and more, they began to frame the conversation and frame our thoughts in certain ways. I'm not saying that's a sort of a tinfoil hat conspiratorialist, but there were things moving within the culture at a very deep level on both the right and the left that have brought us to this moment. And it's interesting, you've got this sort of larger case for for gradually resisting soft totalitarianism on a variety of institutional fronts, but in a way, rekindling some of that togetherness, solidarity, overlap 
resurgent collaboration works in the wake of an election and in the wake of a pandemic as well. So we wish you the very best, Rod, with the, the new book and uh, express great thanks to you both for taking time to, to be with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, Justin. Faith Angle exists to connect journalists, religion scholars, and cutting-edge thinkers as they interpret what's newsworthy, from elections to faith, from economics to culture, and more. Thanks for listening.